scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 21. If you're following along in your pew Bibles, it will be found on page 1,851, 1851. Again, this morning's scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 21. Please stand to honor the reading of God's word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again. Father, I pray now for the word that has just been read to be impressed upon our hearts by your spirit, that your spirit gives us illumination, understanding into the mysteries of your word, that we might have a humble, willing heart to obey. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when we think about the heroes of the Reformation, we typically have in mind individuals like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jurek Zwingli, Thomas Cramner, John Knox. And all of these things, all of these individuals have one thing in common, the fact that they're all men. The stories we tell of the Reformation tend to be their stories, but there are unsung heroes, or I should say, heroines of the Reformation. This morning, I want to introduce you to Lady Jane Grey. She's very much connected to the story that I told you a couple weeks ago about Bloody Mary, who ascended the throne with the intent of making England a Catholic nation once again by undoing all of the reformational changes instituted by her half-brother, King Edward VI. Edward was a boy 
when he was crowned king, only reigned six years before dying, most likely, they believe, of tuberculosis. Now, but what you may not realize is that between the reign of Edward VI and Mary I, there was actually another ruler in England, the nine-day queen, as history knows her, the Lady Jane Grey. She was a first cousin to Edward VI. She was only 16 years old when she became part of a larger plot to ensure that a Protestant would remain on the throne. But her counselors underestimated the fact that the English people cared more for a legitimate monarch than they did for a Protestant one. And so when Mary showed up in London with an entire army behind her, she had little trouble deposing Jane Grey and locking her up in the Tower of London. Now, I already talked about the reign of terror under Bloody Mary, where almost 300 Protestants were burned at the stake because they refused to abandon the gospel they preached. But when it came to Lady Jane Grey, Mary offered her mercy, assuming that she was a mere pawn in a larger plot of others. If Jane Grey would simply renounce her Protestant convictions, if she would take the Catholic Mass, then Mary said, your life would be spared. But Mary and everyone else underestimated Lady Jane Grey. They didn't realize that she was a committed, learned, well-spoken reformer in her own right. After her arrest, she was publicly interrogated by Mary's archbishop, John Feckenham. He interviewed her, he interrogated her before an audience of Catholic supporters. And so this was an extremely intimidating setting for a 16-year-old girl. But Lady Jane held her own. She argued winsomely against the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. She made a compelling case for sola scriptura. And when Feckenham raised the issue of justification and accused her and all the reformers of rejecting the role of good works in the life of the Christian, she responded with great clarity and conviction. She said, quote, I affirm that faith only saves, but it is meet, it is fitting for a Christian to do good works in token, as a sign, that he follows the steps of his master, Christ, Yet may we not say that we profit, that we add to our salvation. For when we have done all, we are unprofitable servants, and faith only in Christ's blood saves us. Luther couldn't have said it any better. On February 12, 1554, Lady Jane Grey was beheaded. Her last words were this, I here die a true Christian woman, and I trust to be saved by the blood of Christ and by none other means. Now that's the kind of 16-year-old that I hope that my daughter grows up to be. And I wonder, I wonder how many 16-year-olds here aspire to have the same courage rooted in the same convictions. Convictions that say, I affirm faith only saves. Faith only in Christ's blood saves us. Lady Jane Grey proclaimed sola fide to the literal end of her life. Sola fide, it means in Latin, faith 
alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. That was her hope. That was her strength. That was her courage. And friends, I tell you her story so that you can see the practical effects, the death-defying power of believing in and living out sola fide. You see, as we continue in our series on the five solas in commemoration of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, we're going over these five slogans that summed up the gospel that the reformers sought to reclaim and to restore for the church. This morning, we're going to focus on sola fide, and we're going to consider its theological claims as well as its practical effects. And we're going to do that by by turning to a passage, a well-known passage here in Galatians chapter 2. Now, this morning, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I'm going to begin by defining sole fide for us, and then we're going to consider three applications found in our text. And I, I should explain from the outset that sole fide really is just another way of saying justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. Obviously, we're going to need to define that. And I, I don't want to just give you a textbook definition. You know, I, I could just pull out a definition from, from, from one of my systematic theology books. But what I'd rather do is to let Paul define terms for us here in Galatians 2. And for that to happen, though, I'm going to need to spend some time laying out the context, giving you the background to our passage. The Apostle Paul is writing Galatians. He's writing not just to one church, like he typically does, but to a number of churches that he planted a few years back in an ancient region called Galatia that's found on Asia Minor. He was up against theological opponents who arrived after he had left, and they came preaching another gospel. These false teachers were devout Jews who who accepted Christ as the Messiah, but even so, even so they... They accepted Christ, but they embraced a different gospel. And you can actually do that. They they believed Jesus was the Messiah, but they taught a different gospel, one that did not include justification by faith alone. They were known as Judaizers, which comes from the term to Judaize. It's like how we say to Christianize someone. You're trying to Judaize someone. You're trying to, to make them a Jew. You see, these teachers, they, they weren't against giving the gospel to Gentiles, essentially non-Jews. But they figured that, hey, if you're going to put your hope of salvation in a Jewish Messiah, well, then it only makes sense that you become Jewish. Now, a Judaizer would argue that For Gentiles to be saved, if they want to be part of God's covenant community, they must not only accept Jesus as the Messiah, but they also, like us, must submit under the law of Moses. You should convert. Convert to Judaism. Observing all the moral and the ceremonial aspects of God's law. And of course, that would include receiving the sign of circumcision. Yeah, that's a high cost. But if you're serious about it, if you're serious about your faith, then you'll do it. So you can see as well why these Judaizers were accusing Paul of watering down the gospel all for the sake of these Gentiles. 
They were accusing him. If you see in chapter 1, in verse 10, they were accusing him of trying to please man by leaving out the costly expectations and requirements of the law just in order to make the gospel easier to accept. I mean, if, if, if the gospel says you have to be circumcised, well, that's hard. But if you tell a bunch of, oh, don't worry about that. Oh, you just, you just got to believe. Oh, yeah, that sounds a lot easier. Now, that's why Paul, in chapter 1, has to argue, no, there's only one gospel. And it's the gospel that I taught you guys in the beginning when I planted these churches. And that's why he spills so much ink in chapter 1, recounting his own life story, his own testimony. He's saying, look, if you know my biography, you know my life story, you know that a pharisaical zealot like me would be the last person to put aside the law of God in order to please people. But I met Jesus. I met him, and he taught me otherwise. He taught me that circumcision is no longer needed. And so this is why he spends so much time in chapter 1 talking about his testimony. And then in chapter 2, he tells of a time when he was living in Antioch, which was a predominantly Gentile city. And how these same Judaizers, they showed up teaching their false gospel, claiming that it was in line with the apostles back in Jerusalem. And so that's why Paul felt it necessary to make a trip to Jerusalem. If you want to read about that particular trip, it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. He goes and makes a trip to make sure that the church over there is not teaching another gospel and opposing his ministry to the Gentiles. He arrives in Jerusalem, and it says, he says in verse 6 that he was pleased to discover that they were preaching the same gospel as him. He says how James, Peter, and John, how they extended the right hand of fellowship. They entrusted him with the gospel to the Gentiles while they took the same gospel to the Jews. And now, and now we get to verse 11, to our passage. And Paul describes a time when he actually had to publicly confront the Apostle Peter, not for denying the gospel, but for not living in step with the truth of the gospel. You see, when Peter first arrived in Antioch, he had no problem sharing table fellowship with Gentile Christians. Remember, he had his own revelation earlier, back in, in Acts chapter 10, where Jesus directly taught Peter not to call anyone unclean whom God has made clean. And so Peter, of all people, he knew full well that Gentile believers were considered clean. They were accepted by God through faith alone in Christ alone, without circumcision, without keeping kosher. So now, though, when certain men, as we're told in verse 11, when they came from James... They came from Jerusalem. We're told that Peter, he drew back and he began to separate himself from these Gentile members of the church. And we're told exactly why he did it. If you look at verse 12, Paul says he did it because he feared. He feared the circumcision party. It was motivated by fear. But what's not clear for us is the fear of what? What was Peter scared of? Now, 
Let's think of the options here. Now, you know, on, on one hand, he could have been scared of these men from James. That is, he feared their opinion. He had feared their intimidation. He feared their threats. That would, of course, assume that these certain men from James are one and the same as the circumcision party, who would also be the Judaizers. Under that interpretation, all three groups would really be referring to the same people. But I find that interpretation hard to believe, considering how Peter, he was already confronted by the circumcision party, as we're told, back in Acts chapter 11. Acts 11 says that he was confronted by the very circumcision party for his willingness to eat with Gentiles for the same thing. And, and there he boldly defended his actions in a manner that I'm sure would have made Paul proud. So why would Peter, in a similar situation, suddenly grow fearful and cave in to the exact same pressures that he once withstood? That's why some commentators would argue that the men from James were not the same people as the circumcision party. They didn't come to confront Peter, but they came to bring a word of warning to Peter. The, the, this, this idea is that they were sent from James, from Jerusalem, to warn Peter of the negative impact that their table fellowship with Gentiles in Antioch was having on Jewish believers living in Jerusalem. The idea here is that the circumcision party in Jerusalem is referring to a band of zealous pharisaical Jews who were increasingly hostile to the Jerusalem church as they were hearing all of these rumors that these Jewish Christians, these Jews who are now embracing Christ as, as the Messiah, out in these other cities where Gentiles are, they would actually dare fellowship with those dogs, with those Gentile sinners, those uncircumcised people. And so they were increasing their persecution on the Jerusalem church. And Peter gets word of this, and he fears the circumcision party in that he fears what they might do to believers in Jerusalem. I think that's a more likely reason why Peter would, would, would withdraw table fellowship in Antioch. But, you know, regardless, regardless of the exact motivation for why he withdrew, his actions alone implicitly agree with the Judaizers' claims that Gentile believers are not part of God's people until they become law-observing Jews. Even though Peter knows they're his brothers and sisters in Christ, he is treating them like they are still these unclean Gentile sinners. And that's hypocritical. And Paul, he calls it out. Now, notice with me, notice how the issue at hand is the issue of cleanliness. Whether someone is ceremonially clean according to Mosaic law. Are these Gentile believers, they're Christians now, but are they clean in the eyes of God without circumcision? That's, that's the big question. 
And take note that there is a vertical and a, a horizontal element involved here. If you are deemed clean and accepted vertically in the eyes of God, then you are considered clean and accepted horizontally by God's people. That's, that's the blessing of being declared ceremonially clean. But then, if you notice in verse 16, if you're following along, suddenly Paul switches terminology. Instead of being clean, he starts talking about being justified. Now, this is important here. If, if we're going to define justification according to Paul in Galatians, then we, then we have to see its connection with being declared clean. And it really has to do with acceptance. Acceptance on both a vertical and a horizontal level. To be justified. To be justified is to be declared clean and accepted vertically in the eyes of God. And therefore, you're considered clean and accepted horizontally by the people of God. Being clean and being justified are both about how God sees you and how that affects how God's people see you and treat you. So they're connected. Cleanliness and justification, they are connected, but they are still distinct ways of describing our salvation. Cleanliness is really a term more suited for the temple, while justification is language that's found in the courtroom. In the temple, you're declared clean by a priest. In the court, you're declared righteous. You're declared justified by a judge. And I think these differences is what led Paul to switch terms. Because justification, if you think about it, communicates more than cleanliness. You see, when, when God calls you clean, he's only referring to your present state. There's no view to your past. You could have been filthy yesterday, but if you observe the law and you ceremonially wash, well, then you can be called clean today. So you're clean, but you still have a record. You're clean, but you still have a reputation of being filthy just yesterday. So this is where justification goes even further. When God calls you righteous, when God calls you justified, he is referring to your present state and to your past, to your past record. In justification, God, he not only does not count our sins against us, in justification, he counts Jesus' righteous record, Jesus' holy reputation towards us. We're declared righteous not just in terms of having washed up clean, but having never been filthy in the first place. We are declared as being brand new. And I think we all know the difference. Let's say there's this, this shirt or this skirt or this, this pair of shoes that you've been really wanting and you finally purchase it. But the first time you wear it out, it gets stained, it gets dirty. Now, all is not lost. You can wash it. And let's say you do a really good job of washing that, that shirt or that skirt, and, and it's totally clean again. It's spotless. But it's not new. It's not the same as it once was. It has a past. It has a record 
of having been dirty, which is going to affect its value if you try to sell it again. It's the same thing, you know, it's, it's the same thing really with, with all of these homes in our city that, that are being repaired after the flood. You can fix all of the damages. You can remodel the entire home. You can give it a new coat of paint. You can fill it with new furniture. But that house still has a past. It has a flood history, which affects its value. We, we understand how this works, don't we? You see, if God's salvation only consisted of cleansing us from sin, we would still carry a past. We would have a history, a record of having once been covered with the filth of sin. I mean, praise God that that your sins would be washed away and forgiven, but you would still carry around the reputation, shall I say, the, the identity of a dirty sinner who cleans up good. And friends, the devil, oh, the devil would love nothing better than to remind you every single day that you are nothing more at the core than a dirty sinner who cleaned up. He'll tell you, oh, sure, you're clean, but you're flawed. You've got a past. You've got a history that affects your value. You're worthless because of the filth that was in your life. Even though it's gone now, it used to be there. That makes you worthless. And friends, that's why we need, in addition to cleansing, we need justification. We need the sinless righteousness of Christ imputed to us We need his spotless reputation counted as ours in order for us to counter the devil and his accusations. And friends, that is a gift. That is a gift that is freely offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are, as we're told, look in verse 17. We are justified in Christ. That means we stand before God in union with Christ where his righteous record, his holy reputation has become ours. And the point is that this gift of righteousness is truly a gift. It's not something that you receive by works of the law, but by faith, through faith alone. Look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, no one is declared right and accepted by God based on what we do for God, but only through faith in what God has done for us in Christ. If you try, friends, if you try to add works to your justification, you are preaching a different gospel. Alistair Begg is known for saying, a Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. A Christ supplemented by circumcision, by law keeping, is a Christ supplanted by that very circumcision and law keeping. Later on, if you look in chapter 5, verse 2, just flip to chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says that if you try to accept circumcision as 
a means of your justification before God, he says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, you can't stop at circumcision. You give an inch, the law will take a mile. You require one stipulation of the law, and you're going to have to keep the whole thing. If you try to supplement the gospel, you supplant the gospel, and you end up giving people a false gospel that offers a false hope, since no one, no one is righteous enough to keep the whole law. And so you lead people to despair and eternal destruction. And this is why Paul is so incredulous towards Peter. Why would you, why would you give Gentile Christians the impression that they need to be circumcised, that they need to keep the law as a means of being accepted by God and by God's people? You know that's impossible. You know that only leads to death. That's being hypocritical, brother. That's Paul's rebuke of Peter. The gospel the gospel that both men hold to is the gospel that preaches sola fide. Where if you want a definition, God, sola fide is teaching that God declares you righteous in regard to your entire past. He declares you righteous and he, he accepts you into his covenant community, not by what you do for him, but only by trusting in what he's done for you through Christ Jesus. He sent Jesus to live the life that you should have lived. He sent Jesus to die the death that you should have died. And if you trust in him, in him alone, friends, you are justified. You are accepted by God. That is sola fide defined. And you know, I, I, I think many of you already believe that. But my question is, do you live it out? Have we applied sola fide in our lives and in our church? What I want to do with the remainder of our time is to help you to apply this doctrine in three ways. There are three applications for you. First, I want to show you how justification by faith alone cuts at the very roots of ethnocentrism because this is where Peter in particular failed to apply his theology. His convictions, they said one thing, but then his conduct said another. It says there in verse 14 that his actions were, quote, not in step with the truth of the gospel. That phrase there literally translates as not ortho-walking. Like ortho, like we get the term orthodontist, orthodontist, um, not straight walking. So Peter's walk was not aligned. It wasn't straight with his talk. His conduct did not align with his convictions. In fact, his conduct was contradicting his very convictions. By withdrawing table fellowship, by, by refusing to accept a Christian horizontally, you're essentially rejecting the reality of God's acceptance of them vertically. That's why racism and ethnocentrism 
are direct denials of justification by faith alone. If you reject them this way, you are saying that they are rejected this way, vertically. Because only, because if you, if you truly believe in sola fide, then you are really saying that anybody can be accepted by God simply by trusting in Jesus. That they are justified without consideration of how religious or righteous they are in the present or how wicked and sinful they were in the past. You're saying that they are justified without consideration of their gender, skin color, nationality, or cultural background. You're saying that a Christian has no defining characteristics save this alone, that that individual is repenting of his or her sins and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. That is the defining characteristic of a Christian. So that means everyone is to be loved and valued because anyone can be saved and justified by faith alone. Now, I believe Peter would have agreed. He would have said, yeah, I share those convictions. I'm not a racist. But his conduct said otherwise. And that's where I want us to pause and I want us to evaluate our own conduct, not necessarily our convictions at this point, because I, I believe you when you say that you believe in sola fide, when you say that you're no racist. But how do you conduct yourself? And what does that say about you? See, this is where we have a corporate and a personal responsibility. As a corporate body, we as a congregation, we should make every effort to communicate that our communion table, the communion table we're about to share in this morning, that our Christian fellowship is open to all who turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Now, we have Chinese congregations in our church. And by, by virtue of their particular mission to the immigrant community, they will have a table that tends to reflect one culture more than others, and that's to be expected. That is to be affirmed based on their particular mission. But for us, in an English-speaking congregation, let's work hard. Let's pray even harder that our communion table reflects more of the diversity that God has put in our own lives outside of the walls of, these church, of this church. And on a personal level, and this is for members on the English and on the Chinese side, let's ask ourselves this on a personal level. When was the last time I shared table fellowship in my own home with someone of another race or culture? just someone very different than myself. I know you're not a racist. I know you believe in sola fide. So let your life, let your conduct reflect those convictions. Secondly, I want to stress that justification by faith alone offers no justification for a continual life of sin. This is really where the Catholic Church said that the reformers were wrong, they, they, they were, this is where they attacked 
the reformers' insistence on justification by faith alone. They said, if justification is by faith alone without any view to good works, then why would anyone pursue good works? If God justifies the bad, well then, what's the point of being good? That's what the Catholic Church thought about sola fide. In fact, Paul's opponents argued something similar. If you look in verse 17, I'll read that to you again. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So the Judaizers accused Paul's gospel of making Christ the author of sin or at least the encourager of sin. But Paul says, he says in verse 18, that if I continue to sin after my justification, that is wholly my fault. Blame me. Don't blame Christ. That's on me. But then he goes on. He goes on to explain in verses 19 and 20 that the gospel he preaches not only involves a change of status from condemned to righteous, but the gospel he preaches involves a change of nature from old to new, from death to life. Just listen. Listen to the language of dying and living a new life in Christ. That's found for us in verses 19 to 20. Verse 19, for, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, I'm only justified because I'm a new creation. I'm a new man in Christ. Friends, God, God only justifies those that he has made new by a new birth. Our justification and our regeneration, they are distinct, but they are inseparable categories describing our salvation. And so my point here is that with a new regenerate heart comes new desires and new motives where we want to obey God, where we want to do good. Martin Luther, he once quipped that justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Did you get that? Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. True saving faith is always accompanied by obedience, by good works. It's not alone because through new eyes of faith, we see Jesus as a master we want to obey, as a friend that we want to please. So why would I continue in my sin? Why would I not want to obey? He is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Paul's beautiful language in verse 20. And this is why... I so appreciate the way that Paul is rebuking Peter here, how he's really trying to, 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 to pastorally restore his brother. Because he didn't just, notice he didn't just call out Peter's behavior as wicked and sinful. No, he calls his behavior out of step with the truth of the gospel, the gospel he knows Peter believes in. And I think this is a really good model for us for how we ought to confront fellow brothers and sisters who are living in sin, how we are to restore them pastorally. You see, if, if I just call out your sin, I'm just condemning you. 
But if I help you to see that at the root of your problems is a lack of faith in the Jesus that I know you believe in, that you're not recognizing, you're not remembering how much he loves you and all that he has done for you in life and death. If I help you see that, I'm actually giving you the strength to change. That's how we should confront and to restore our brothers and sisters. And that leads to my third and final application. That justification by faith alone fuels worship for the one who gave himself for you. Just look with me at the last verse, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I take that to mean that if justification could be achieved by our own work, well, then that makes Christ's work totally unnecessary. It makes his brutal death on a cross a senseless act of violence. I mean, just picture with me. Picture you are walking along a riverbank with a friend, and, and, and you happen to slip and fall into that river, which has a strong current that quickly pulls you away. But you're an excellent swimmer, and you immediately begin to swim perpendicular to the current, and you're making your way back to shore. But before you get there, your friend jumps in, grabs you, pushes you to shore, but in so doing, he gets pulled away by the current, and he drowns. Now, I am sure you will appreciate the gesture. You'll feel love. But mostly, you'll feel confused. Why did he sacrifice himself? It was unnecessary. It was senseless. I could have made it myself. Now, let me change one important aspect of the story. Imagine the exact same scenario, but for the fact that you don't know how to swim. And you are entirely helpless in that river. You are doomed to die. If that were the case, then your friend's sacrifice would feel like the epitome of love. It would change you forever. You would never stop for the rest of your life honoring your friend, telling everyone that you ever meet about what your friend has done for you to save your life. Church, do you see why sola fide matters? If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could have saved yourself by works of the law, then Christ's death was unnecessary. It was senseless. But if you were utterly helpless, and doomed to die under the weight of your sin, then Jesus' sacrifice becomes your everything. And you'll spend the rest of your life giving your everything in worship and in service to the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Sola fide. Amen.